0: When Betty was only two months old, we met with our local early intervention office for the first time. Our pediatrician had sent us for an evaluation of Betty's developmental delays. So one weekday morning in March of 2013, a small team of professionals sat on the floor of my living room to observe and test her abilities. Their assessments determined that she was eligible for early intervention services. And that's when the paperwork began. Among the piles of forms to read and sign was one that referenced the school district. It was a consent form that would allow the district to access Betty's early intervention records. I signed it, but to be honest, the fact that I signed it gave me pause over the next few days. I wondered if it was a mistake because I didn't want Betty to be labeled once she got to school for any challenges that she had faced and overcome as a baby. One night while I was lying awake in my bed, my mind dug up a memory of a study I'd once heard about. A psychologist named Robert Rosenthal had done an experiment with a group of ordinary lab rats. He divided the rats into two arbitrary groups and then labeled them as incredibly smart or incredibly dumb. Then he commissioned his students to run the assigned rats through their mazes. The students had no idea that the labels didn't reflect the rats' skill, level, or intelligence. And you might not think that a simple and arbitrary label would affect the rat's performance, right? But the results were dramatic. They weren't even close. The rats labeled as smart did nearly twice as well as the rats labeled as dumb. I know it sounds like the stuff of science fiction, but later experiments with children and IQ tests and similar random labels showed the same findings. Students that were believed to be on the verge of great academic success performed according to those expectations, and students not labeled that way didn't. Teacher expectations were found to have a substantial effect on student performance. Now you might wonder why this was even on my mind. After all, Betty clearly had some differences in genetic factors at play, but at that time Betty did not have a diagnosis, and her doctors and our family were still under the impression that with a little help, she would catch up to her peers, and within a few months or years, her delays would be completely imperceptible. Months later, Betty's diagnosis came, and with it, a jarring prognosis of lifelong physical and intellectual disabilities. You might think that the story of Mr. Rosenthal's rats became less relevant. After all, she was no longer ordinary. But in a way, the idea of classifications and expectations became even more concerning. Now it wasn't some theoretical future teacher categorizing Betty because of a label. It was me. My friends, our family and the entire education system. In January of 2013, my baby girl Betty was born. Later, we discovered a chromosomal deletion that would affect the rest of her life. I created this podcast to share the stories and struggles of special needs children and their families. This is episode 16 of Bringing Up Betty. I'm Sarah Evans. Last September, a small team gathered to help us understand what our options were for Betty's future. She was barely two and a half, but there were important choices to make just around the corner. Early intervention services end abruptly at age three in our state. In order to receive continued therapies and services, children are transitioned to preschool. Five months before that occurs, parents and representatives from the school district gather for what is known as a transition meeting. They walked us through a list of questions that gave them a general picture of Betty's abilities as well as the areas where she needed the most help. We talked about Betty's social skills. She She loves people and... She doesn't mind leaving us. <laughs> yeah, she's, she does fine with others. She doesn't seem to cry. Gross motor skills. When she's in sitting position, she's still learning that um, she can't just go backwards. Right. Like she'll catch herself, but still sometimes she'll just throw herself back and like clunk hard on the floor. Mm-hmm. Appropriate play with toys. I mean, yeah, she'll do rolls a roll ball, rolls a yeah. ball, drives a car jumps on the trampoline (laughs) with help. (laughs) And everything else we've been working on for the past three years. (laughs) Rules for her are pretty minimal, but, and we're working, I mean, the biggest things are, like, throwing her food, throwing her cup, and, like, throwing her head back into us. Mm. There was talk of parents' rights and evaluations and IEPs and least restrictive environments. The district representative showed us a pyramid to explain the least restrictive environment. The widest portion of the pyramid represented a typical classroom in a regular neighborhood school. Moving up there was a special classroom in a typical school and then a special classroom in a special school. There are pros and cons to each. A typical classroom provides peer models but has larger class sizes and higher student-to-teacher ratios. A special classroom offers smaller class sizes and better ratios and special schools offer in-depth focus on specific diagnoses and making progress in those areas where students are challenged. With Betty, we could consider any of the three options, but pretty quickly we ruled out the regular classroom. We knew that with a larger class size and the energy and pace of a three-year-old preschool class, she would be overwhelmed and start to shut down. Even though generally it would be considered the least restrictive environment, In Betty's case, the regular classroom was actually the most restrictive. That's why we took it off the table right away. We were considering special classrooms in a special school for children with visual impairments that we'll call Parkside, and a special classroom in a regular school that we'll call Hamilton. Earlier that day, I had received an email from a local mom I had reached out to. Her daughter attended preschool at Parkside and she raved about the staff and schedule, the services and sensory activities. On her recommendation alone, I felt convinced. At the same time, I recognized that this was a decision our family and team needed to make and not on a written endorsement alone. Our next step was to visit both schools and get an idea of what they offered in person. First up was Parkside. As I mentioned earlier, Parkside is a school for children who are visually impaired. For some reason, I had concluded that many of the children there would only have vision impairments and not be dealing with additional disabilities. What I found was quite the opposite. As I wheeled Betty into one of the preschool classrooms for the first time, I was completely overwhelmed. My heart dropped a little as I looked around. The west wall was lined with seven adaptive strollers. Along the north wall was a line of equipment, standers, adaptive seating, gait trainers, a mishmash of hefty special needs equipment. A few young children were doing various activities and being carefully cared for by the staff. As a young girl approached me for a hug, I could see that she was the only ambulatory child in the class. Immediately, I observed that there were various and distinct needs among this group of children. Their abilities were varied, and at first glance, quite limited. I smiled and asked questions to hide my sadness and surprise, but it was one of those moments when an unpredictable wave of helplessness and grief washed over me. I could clearly see that my daughter would be well cared for, but at the same time I felt completely powerless. I realized how quickly I'd have to let her move into the world on her own. I would be handing my daughter over for several hours each day, placing her in the total care of someone outside of our home and family. This was more than a Finding Nemo moment where I had to learn to let go. It was a sudden and unexpected jolt where all those fears about labels and expectations bubbled up to the surface again. I wasn't just letting her go, I was placing her in an environment where she was undoubtedly being categorized not so much by peers or teachers or therapists, but by society at large, and potentially, likely, for the rest of her life. Suddenly, at the tender age of three, it felt like the world was giving up on her. I felt like she and these sweet kids she would be attending school with were being lumped together as a group that can often be viewed by society as less than, as weak, Difficult or bothersome. The next classroom was in the same school where children had more functional ability. As Betty came in, we were greeted by a, another tiny person who asked Betty's name and invited her to play. I was encouraged. Many things we observed that day about the school itself were lovely, but at the same time, completely overwhelming. As I buckled Betty into her car seat and sat behind the wheel of my car, I couldn't contain my emotions. I knew Betty had disabilities, but seeing the groups she would be a part of and the severity of their struggles was a huge reality check. As Betty's mom, I could see quite clearly how special Betty was. I could see her gifts, her strength, her determination. I could see that she was funny and full of love. But as we started this journey where she would be publicly categorized for the first time, I couldn't help but wonder and fear that the rest of the world might not see beyond the labels and challenges. On another autumn day, we visited Hamilton. Ready, Betty? excited. The leaves crunched under Betty's wheels and the wind blew hard, her blonde locks twirling with each gust. Hamilton was a wonderful school with lots of helpers in the classroom. We were warmly greeted and the children moved like clockwork through their activities and routine. Once again, there was a large variety in abilities and needs, but this time I was a little more prepared because I had a pretty good idea of what to expect. I liked what I saw. And that's what made this decision so incredibly difficult. Over the next several weeks, we weighed pros and cons. I read books. I prayed for clarity. I talked it over with our early intervention specialists and therapists. And as with most important decisions, I had a really hard time coming to a conclusion. I decided to go back to Parkside and spend another day observing. I had been so overwhelmed at that first visit that I didn't think I had been able to give a fair assessment of how it compared to Hamilton. I went alone and purposely sat like a fly on the wall. I watched circle time and sensory play, lunch in the cafeteria and music time. Honestly I left feeling more confused than ever. I started to wonder if I should send Betty to school at all. For about a day and a half, I seriously contemplated keeping Betty at home. I finished Betty's picture schedule, we added a little more structure to our day, and we had our little homeschool complete with music time. Homeschool is a wonderful solution for many families, but as soon as I set down my guitar, I knew that it was not the right option for us. Betty's village that had so wonderfully helped us navigate her first three years needed to expand, not contract. Betty needed a new set of helpers. She needed peers who would be her friends and teachers who would love her and help her learn. She needed professionals who would help her in each and every area of her development. Betty needed to go to school. A few days before we had to make a decision about where Betty would attend, we met with Betty's private PT for a therapy session. She works with children of all ages so I wondered what her thoughts and experience had been with children who had attended the different schools. She listened to and validated my concerns and then gave a strong nudge towards Parkside. She told me that children she had worked with who had attended Parkside had made tremendous gains there. It was just the nudge I needed to finalize my decision. Betty had a formal assessment at the district offices and a few weeks after that, Our first IEP meeting. IEP stands for Individualized Education Program. It's a written plan that caters the educational experience to the needs of the student. Every child who receives special education services must have an IEP. If you've read very much about IEP meetings on the internet then you might conclude like I did that they are inherently scary. There's a lot of fearmongering about IEP meetings. I'm not saying it's undue. I don't doubt that many parents have had less than stellar experiences. But in preparing for our IEP meeting, I was given wise advice time and again to remember that most of the people there, teachers and therapists, have chosen their careers because they want to help people, in particular young children. I didn't wanna go into this meeting with my fists in the air but I did want to make sure that Betty got what she needed. The meeting went mostly as expected. We went over Betty's evaluations, set goals, determined placement. She would attend Parkside. And finally got to related services, where we would determine how much of each kind of therapy would be best for Betty. Because we live in a state that spends less per student than any other state in the union, I knew our services wouldn't compare with our friends who lived in New York or California. So I prepared my copacetic lines about appreciating that there were budget constraints, but bringing the focus back to Betty and her needs and goals and the free appropriate public education that she was entitled to. But I quickly realized that I was naive to expect that budget constraints would come up at all. Even though the district is legally required to provide everything your child needs in order to benefit from their education, they don't talk about budgetary constraints. They simply stay within them, which in a state like ours means padding your proposed 30 minutes a month of physical and occupational therapy with lots of rhetoric about how it's a common practice to only promise the minimum and then make adjustments once they get to know child yeah it just that seems like very very minimal and i i don't know if we're like creating a baseline like that's almost like what the evaluation was you know 30 minutes one once a month but i don't know it just seems like how many times they never talked of constraints of their resources they only spoke about how they would train the staff and teachers who work with Betty every day, which they said was actually more important than having one-on-one time with the therapist. I was surprised and pretty upset, but I could see that they wouldn't budge. They essentially had nowhere to go. I don't fault them. I don't believe they were feeding me lines or trying to offer less than they could simply because they could get away with it. I realized that that's just kind of how things are where we live and I'm trying hard to trust that the people we'll be working with will get creative with our limited resources to make sure Betty gets what she needs. After three long hours, we finally had a signed document that would direct every aspect of Betty's first year of school. I was exhausted, and my head was pounding. I felt that I was about to send Betty into the vast unknown. Ready or not, I thought, here we go. A sunny, cold, and much-anticipated day in January finally arrived. It was Betty's third birthday. Our early intervention team gathered once again in my living room. We sat on the floor and ate birthday donuts. We reviewed goals and progress and laughed over memories while wondering aloud how quickly the time had gone. We signed the final paperwork. We took pictures and hugged and said our goodbyes. Betty sat on my hip as we followed them out to their cars and waved at each of them as they drove away for the last time. Betty got a harmonica for her birthday, so for the past several weeks, the soundtrack to our life has sounded much like that of a Ken Burns film. And maybe that's why I felt so nostalgic about early intervention and our first round of helpers. But thinking about them has also made me realize that maybe Robert Rosenthal's experiment just doesn't apply to us. Sure, Betty has a label, she has a few diagnoses, and maybe that label affects people's expectations. But what it doesn't change is the fact that wonderful helpers have stepped up and into our life to help her. Betty's label has not limited her potential. If anything, it has opened her world to those who could see her potential and help her achieve it. When Fred Rogers was a boy and would see scary things on the news, his mother would say, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Sometimes our own lives and challenges can seem more scary or uncertain than anything we see on the news. The labels, categories, and judgments of others towards Betty are still a little scary to me at times. We are so new to this life with disabilities, especially how it works and is perceived outside of our home and family. But as I went throughout the rest of that cold, sunny birthday with Betty, and we celebrated all along the way, I thought of all the people who had helped us on our journey so far. Each of them could have labeled or categorized Betty. They could have had low expectations for her. But they didn't. Our early intervention therapists and specialists had loved her and seen her potential and pushed her to progress and achieve. And when she was tired and cranky and refused to do her part, they still loved her. And so as we move into this next phase of Betty's life, I'm committed to keep looking for the helpers because I think Mr. Rogers' mom is right. You will always find people who are helping. Today's episode was recorded and produced by me, Sarah Evans. This episode kicks off season two of Bringing Up Betty, and we've got some great things in store. You definitely don't want to miss any upcoming episodes, so please make sure that you are subscribed to the show in iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please share it with a friend share it with your favorite online community share it with your doctor or therapist or anyone who might benefit from listening if we spread the word and more people listen it will be easier for other parents like you to find the show in iTunes oh and before I forget there's a quick poll on my website it's just a a really easy survey it'll take about five minutes I'm trying to get to know my audience a little bit better. So if you have five minutes, please visit bringingupbettycom slash survey. I really appreciate you listening to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day.